12. Thanks, Sam. James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. It's called Taming the Tongue in this Bible. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We will all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of animals to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it's is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth came praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Good evening, everyone. I apologize if I have to stop and cough and drink occasionally. Tonight I'm just finishing up. Uh, around with a, a sore throat, but I think I'm pretty much over it, so you should get the premium experience. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about taming the tongue. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that you open it to our hearts tonight and open up our hearts to what you have to say. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Right, we don't normally do this in a sermon. Um, but um, I'm going to do one of those crowd participation type things. It's a little experiment I'm calling hypothetically speaking. Um, I'm going to give you three scenarios which involve telling the truth in one way or another. And for each, I'd like you to decide how you would respond. Um, then we'll do a show of hands to see who goes which way on that. Feel free to leave your hands down if you're uncomfortable answering or if you don't want to answer at all. Um, after each scenario, I'll give you about 30 seconds or so to decide uh, where you stand on that issue. Um, and in that time, you can, you can talk to the person next to you, or if you're introverted, you can just gaze up at the ceiling and try and look so deep in thought it would be a shame to disturb you. Um, sounds pretty simple? Good, all right, here we go. Um, everyone be good Christians. I'm gonna try and be very neutral in answering these as not to prejudice anyone. All right, scenario one. Your 13-year-old nephew is a great basketball fan, and he whiles away his allotted screen time watching NBA games. Uh, one day, he is at your house, and he spontaneously confides in you he's thinking of trying out for the school's team. He asks you if you think he's good enough. You have seen him play, and the kid just don't have it. He's distractible, uncoordinated, short, and clumsy. Any tryout he participates in is likely to be unsuccessful. Do you, A, impress upon him the importance of pursuing dreams, especially hard ones, although long-term practice and sacrifices will be required, and then drive him to the tryout and watch him crater before the judgment of his peers. 
Or B, do you warn him that the athletic market value of short, klutzy basketball enthusiasts is slim to none, but that he has plenty of other skills and virtues that are worth praising? <laughs> and then watch him slowly deflate like his henceforth unused NBA-approved Wilson solution. That's a basketball. Um, <laughs> do you encourage him and then drive him to a certain failure, or do you discourage him and handle what results from that? You have 30 seconds. Decide. All right, that's about long enough. Uh, who's going to encourage him to follow his dreams, even though it's going to hurt a little bit right now? Uh, we're, we're a pretty positive crowd. Um, who's going to give him the cold, hard truth um, that he should consider soccer? All right. Okay, we're mostly a, uh, a, a gently encourage and hope for the best on the other end of that kind of way. Okay, that's fair. That's the right way to do it. Um, oh, no, it's just... Most of these, the second one is based on something, but anyway, the third one is, is definitely not. Um, these get progressively less funny and a bit more serious, so we'll start tamping that down now. Scenario two, you have a harmless nickname for one of your friends that she doesn't know about, but the rest of your group does. You don't think it's mean or gossipy to use it, it's just kind of a play on one of her foibles. Um, but one day, one of your mutual friends blurts that name out in front of her and she seems hurt. Do you, A, choose to cease using that term altogether in the secret way you've been using it and let it lapse into unmarked history? Do you, B, confess that you created that nickname at the risk of damaging the friendship and then cease using the term? Or do you, C, consider that your friends might have similar harmless jokes about you and deciding that you're okay with that, they should be too, and then continue to use that name, albeit more discreetly? You have 30 seconds. Decide. All right, that's long enough. That's long enough. Um, who just shuts up and lets it go away? Yeah? All right. Who, uh, who, who makes a confession of it, maybe damages the friendship, but cleans their conscience? All right, we're kind of split there. And any takers for just toughen up and live with the nickname? <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> you got one. Okay. All right, now we're outside of Funny Town. We're at uh, genuinely difficult. These get less... This just becomes difficult and kind of painful, but it's not an uncommon sort of scenario, so I'm going to read this one. Uh, scenario three, one of your friends admits to having had a romantic tryst with a mutual friend 16 years ago while he was engaged to another woman. His partner in this was his wife's then and now best friend. Both of the offending friends swear the indiscretion occurred once before they came to their senses and you have reason to believe them. Do you immediately inform the wife because she has a right to know that she has been offended? Do you give one or both of the offenders a week's head start to confess before you inform the wife yourself? Or do you see Let Sleeping Dogs Lie, a 16-year-gone sin from which both have confessed and repented to God, is not sufficient cause to undermine an otherwise sound 
and long-running friendship? You may decide. Now, like I said, if, if you don't want to answer any of these because it's kind of all too much to have dumped on you at once, that's fine. Don't put your hand up at all. But since that's enough time, uh, who thinks that you should inform the offended woman immediately? No one. One. <laughs> Just to be stirring. Um, who thinks you should give both the offenders a head start and a chance to confess on their own? A couple, a couple, if you were who thinks that you just leave this alone, it's not yours to interfere with, and it's mostly, it's so far in the past, not worth digging up at this point. All right, we're all, it's, it's actually a reasonably even spread, everyone's kind of, eh, as you might have guessed, there's no exact right answer with these. Um, I've phrased them in, in such a way that I think you can defend them from a, a reasonably uh, theologically sound point of view. But, the point with this is that the taming of the tongue, it's not always a matter of, of uh, telling the truth or telling the lie. The way that we talk, the way we conduct, the way we speak, the way we say things and who we say them to and who we don't say them to is often a great deal more complex um, than a simply a binary choice between the obviously good and the obviously bad. The obvious stuff always needs recalling, and uh, even though we know it probably should need no mentioning, we know that... Um, we should not be spreading, um, spreading malicious rumors, even if we think they are likely to be true. Uh, we know not to lie to people for our own gain or personal comfort. But there's also a whole world of difficult decisions about what to say or not to say, or when to say it or not to say it at all. And the nature of family and community is that we hit those decisions all the time, constantly. And these scenarios, um, some are funny and some are painful, but none of them are unrealistic or crazy. Some are more severe than others. Um, the middle one, like I said, about the nickname joke there, is something I was convicted about while writing this sermon. Um, I have a certain friend who, by his own personal quirks, tends to be really enthusiastic about things he likes and very dismissive of things he doesn't like. And I started the joke behind his back, I suppose, now, that he had three modes for things. He either loves it, he hates it, or he doesn't know it exists. Um, I didn't think it was offensive at the time, uh, but I sure was happier saying it about him than to him. And that alone should have been enough to convince me that that joke was mean and dumb. And so I apologized to him earlier, and I, um, earlier today, in fact, and I confessed, and he's forgiven me, and everything is good there now. And I will allow that joke now to lapse into unmarked history. And for interest's sake, I would tell the clumsy nephew that he's bad at basketball. Um, better to have that dream crushed in a safe space than in front of a high school full of his peers. Um, and he's going to need to absorb that at some point. I've seen too many voice and Australian Idol and X Factor reject compilations of people badly singing in front of the nation and then quietly judged their parents and family for not letting them know before they did that um, to not follow through and tell this hypothetical nephew. Friends don't let friends humiliate themselves. Um, the third scenario was so sad and messy, I'm not completely sure what the best path is there. I lean, I lean towards letting sleeping dogs lie. I don't think I have the right to torpedo this poor woman's life over this issue. Opinions may differ. I welcome your commentary after the service. But the point of this is that the tongue is immensely powerful and capable of great destruction. 
The fruit of the tongue is immensely powerful and beyond simply telling the truth or lying. And that fact has a commensurately huge impact on the way that we live our lives as individuals, the way we act towards each other as God's people, and, and how we show the world that we are living a life consistent with the gospel that we preach. So let's look at this passage again and break it down a little as we go. But just before we do, we'll look a bit at the context. If you remember James chapter 2 coming immediately before, and this passage, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but then does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is not, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Chapter 2 was about action. It was about claiming to have faith, the declaration of faith, having no value without the action of faith behind it. Faith is demonstrated by faithful action and doing, in this case, uh, right for the poor and the hungry in this example. And declaring faith only has the value that is backed up by the faith demonstrated in the speaker's life. And so chapter 3 is framed in this discussion about how vitally important it is to have a consistency between declared faith and enacted faith. The thing we say and the thing we do. And so James begins first two verses of chapter 3. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, when James says teachers, he is not specifically talking about uh, biblical expositional preachers. That's certainly kind of the, the top of the, the list of people who should be um, careful about the way that they teach. Um, but anyone who is in a position where they teach or they demonstrate behavior that others are going to model is part of this category. And you can extend the principle out further to anyone, uh, parents, older siblings, anyone to whom someone is going to look up and model their actions after. If you can teach someone to be good, you have multiplied the goodness of your character out into other people. If you teach someone your mistakes and failings, you have multiplied your mistakes and failings into their lives and their character. This is true for parents and pastors and presidents. Now, verse 1 says, teachers will be judged more strictly, and this seems obvious enough to us, though the truth is precisely the opposite in most realms of life and most way through history. In most jobs, in uh, business, for example, the higher up you get, the more tolerance for mistakes there kind of is. A worker in a Coca-Cola warehouse who drops a box full of glass bottles may have it taken out of their pay, or certainly if it happens twice. A shipping manager for Coca-Cola who has 100,000 units delivered to Beaconsfield, Tasmania, instead of Beaconsfield, Western Australia, who costs the company thousands of dollars in shipping charges, will find this laughed at by his colleagues as long as he doesn't make a habit of it. A French peasant 400 years ago who accidentally puts an arrow through a deer on the king's hunting grounds would be hanged. A French knight in the circle of the king who accidentally puts an arrow through a royal butler at a raucous party is likely to get away with it. The normal flow of power in life is that those who are in a more influential position get more flexibility. And they get more flexibility to abide by the codes of behavior they are imposing on those beneath them. Now, you might think this should be different when it comes to positions of moral authority. Um, certainly, when you're teaching people about how they should act 
your actions should have a greater weight. But historically, no. Moral figures got away with plenty of hypocrisy too. Uh, Muhammad, the founder of the Islamic faith, has dozens of occasions in the Quran and the Hadith where um, he will contradict a law that he or Allah um, gives in the holy text. And an exception is made for him because he is the prophet. God says, you must have no more than four wives. Muhammad gets an exception, gets considerably more than that. God says, no idols, no kissing stones for, for luck or any other reason. But Muhammad has a particular favorite stone. There is an exception made for that stone. Over and over this happens. This is historically normal because the lesson behind it is about obedience more than demonstration. The rules are down there on this level for me and up there at another level of power it might be different. I don't understand that level, but I obey the rules on my level. That's the historical thinking. Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire when Jesus was born and head of the imperial cult that took offerings for Caesar as a god, he famously introduced a morality reform which made adultery a capital offense. He himself spoke a lot about morality and virtue, but it is fair to say he did not feel held to the same standard that he doled out, as men in power rarely do. But the leaders in Scripture, in the Bible, kings, prophets, priests, all of these are held to a higher standard amongst God's people. Because amongst God's people, the rules don't change where you go up the totem pole. They get, in fact, more strict, if anything. We know this because Jesus came in the most humble, God-obedient, faithful, and selfless way conceivable, and was killed for his trouble, and then rose again and told those who follow him, all right, everyone do that. That is an intimidating standard, and the only reason we value integrity and moral clarity and people who do the things that they ask others to do is because of that act and the impression it's made on our society. Because of the standard that God set for us in his son. So then verse 2 in this passage goes on to say that uh, something that almost seems to conflict. It says, everyone stumbles in many ways. And if you are perfect in the way you speak, you will keep your whole body in check. A strange thing to say when we're talking about how untamable the tongue is. If you can just become perfect, everything will be fine. That is to say, if you can control the way you speak, everything else in your life, every other part of who you are and how you live will follow after because everything else is easy by comparison and follows in the wake of the way that you speak. And James illustrates colorfully in the next six verses. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it can make great boasts. Consider what a great forest, or what great a forest is set on fire by a spark. The tongue is also a fire, the world, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, it sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil, full of deadly poison. This is full of very powerful images. Um, and it's a bit of a confusing sequence. There's a lot of seemingly conflicting statements here. It's you've got to be perfect because you're going to be held to a higher standard. But you can't do it. You can't be perfect. Everyone stumbles. You stumble. Everyone will stumble. But 
If you get under control and you are perfect, everything else will fall into place. But no one tames the tongue. It's untamable. It's evil. But if you tame it, it's like a rudder on a ship. You can go wherever you want. It's like steering a horse with a bridle. But you can't because your tongue is full of poison and it's made of hellfire. The inference, though, is obvious that total control over the errors and sins we commit in our life is not something we can hope to accomplish. We can improve and we can uh, strive and we must do these things because the price of letting our speech go wild is enormous. But we shouldn't ever get so comfortable that we don't worry about what impact we will have when we say things, especially if we are in a position where people are likely to hear and be influenced by the things that we say. And the more that you put yourself in a teaching position, the more you need to clean up your act and start walking the way you talk. And watching the way you talk. James finishes from verses 9 to 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Another absolute statement. Can salt water and fresh water come from the same spring? Can a grapevine bear figs? The answer is obvious, no. Each one is a source of one thing and it reliably brings forth that one thing. Someone who looks to the sea for fresh water is going to get sick. Someone who looks to an olive tree for figs is going to be disappointed. And someone who listens to a Christian who pronounces faith but speaks just as cruelly or ignorantly as anyone else might is going to get a distorted picture of who Jesus is. This is not meant to be a litmus test. Like you say, oh, a spring can't have both salt and fresh water. You say you're a Christian, you say a mean thing, therefore you're not a Christian. It's not that kind of math. It's an example from nature of consistency that James is asking us to emulate. Just like back in chapter 2, a profession of faith without a faithful action has no saving value. And likewise, a profession of faith without faithful action in our speech the area in which we have the most power over our lives and each other's lives, is not only useless for the purpose of leading people to God, it also poisons and sets fire to the relationships around you. So what's the distilled message of these verses? First, we have to be aware of the circles where we have influence. That all of us who presume to teach should check that our declaration of faith is consistent with the way that we act and the way that we say things. And that begins with getting control over how we speak. And if you are a Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ, the bare minimum expectation of our faith is that we are ready to give reason for what we believe and tell the world that Jesus lives. We are all stewards of the gospel, so even if we are not raising any children or discipling any teens or leading any ministries or preaching any sermons, we are at least responsible for how we live in relation to the gospel and how we teach that to the people in our lives. And if you fit into any of those additional categories, the severity of judgment leveled on you is multiplied by God and by man. So if we want to start applying this passage, we have to start thinking about the influence we have on the people around us by the way we speak. Are we in a position of 
moral authority or formal authority in our workplace? Um, do you find yourself to be the one among your friends who creates directions when the rest of you are together and kind of aimless? Are there young people in your life, cousins, children, younger friends, who are looking to you, whether they say it or not, for how to act and how to live? Kind of a side note, women particularly have a lot of power in this area, more so than men do. It's tied up kind of in the way that um, women speak and hear about three more layers in a conversation than men do at any given time. Now, women tend to set the tone for, tone for a discussion in any room they are in. And so it's because well, it's, it's so important for men in their lives to have their approval. Um, sisters, mothers, daughters, wives, friends, it doesn't quite matter. It's a human fact. The superpower that men have in this world is that we can lift any box, open any jar, move any couch. We are strong and we like that and it's cool and great. But the underrated superpower that women have in this world is the power to civilize men. And if you set a reasonable standard of behavior, the men around you are societally and biologically compelled to try and rise to that standard. You'll see this particularly with young people, but it's true all the way through life, even with the corners rounded off. If you have a room full of young guys with no women present, there is a tendency for the behavior and discussion in the room to become somewhat more coarse, let's say. Not necessarily rude, but definitely more blunt and kind of dopey. And then a woman enters the room, and then everything changes immediately. It's like a room full of dogs running around barking, and then all at once they turn into that painting with the dogs playing poker. It's like, I'm not a dog. I am wearing a hat. I am civilized. I am wagering. I am doing refined manly things, obviously. And then she leaves, and they all go back to sniffing each other in peace. <laughs> when a man walks into a room full of young women, they will talk about him while he is in the room. It's often very awkward for the guy because he is trying to figure out who he is trying to impress most without disappointing anyone. They are not at all concerned with his standard for them. A husband can walk in on his wife talking to her friends and they will all stop and smile cheekily at him. And as he walks away, they will burst into laughter. And all he can think is, I know this must be about me because it happened right when I left. But they sounded happy, so that's good. That's good, right? I'm doing it. Yes, I knew it. I'm a man. <laughs> this is a long tangent to say that we are all responsible for the way that we speak. And all of us take our cues a little from one another on how we speak when we're in a community together. So if you're the top dog guy in a group of friends and you set the tone of, of uh, discussion and behavior at a kind of a coarse level, other guys are going to kind of average out where you are. And the behavior will show it as well. And if you happen to be a lady and you want to be one of the guys because you want to seem likable to them, if you set a low bar for their behavior, you might not actually be doing them any favors. You actually have a tremendous power to raise them up. But the main application of James's words are for church life. How do we talk to each other? How do we talk about our church? And the way that we speak as Christians to the world reflects what Christ is supposed to be saying. We have the power to give a terribly distorted image of who our God is to the world we're supposed to be speaking truth to. So how do you speak to members, or about members of this church when no one's listening, or for that matter, when everyone's listening? I know I've had friends who have said things like, I wouldn't say anything behind someone's back, I wouldn't say to their face. 
which means he's unlikely to talk like a coward, but is perfectly capable of being a jerk and talking rudely to someone's face. We're not called to lie when we have contention with each other, but we are called to manage that contention well, conspicuously well, godly in our level of management. How do you talk to those about this church who are themselves outside it? Have you slipped into the trap of focusing on the things that might disappoint us to the exclusion of the things here that fulfill us and strengthen us in our walk? Things we might otherwise take for granted. None of us is an island. And being part of a church is to be voluntarily submitted to one another. What injures one of us injures all of us. And the way we represent our church to the world reflects on all of us. And the way that we represent our God to the world reflects on him. The scripture could not use more severe words to warn us. A blazing fire from hell, a deadly poison, a world of evil. Every level of our life and our faith in some way depends on how we conduct our speech. And we owe it to our church family and to our savior to conduct ourselves at the highest level we can and to push that bar up a little bit every day. There's an uh, author called uh, Joseph Telushkin. He's a best-selling author on topics of honesty, among other things. I played one of his videos for the youth, so they might know what I'm talking about. But uh, He does uh, workshops in, in uh, companies about uh, honest discourse in the workplace and that kind of thing. And At the beginning of his events, he asked the crowd, how many of you here can think of at least one embarrassing personal incident that, if it were to become widely known, would negatively impact your life? And invariably, almost every hand in the room goes up. And the ones that don't, he says, have bad memories or are lying. Now, I won't ask that question of this room. We have done enough hand raising for one day in a Baptist church. But <laughs> the truth is that while we are desperate to keep our own shortcomings and embarrassing moments a secret from the people we care about, we secretly crave to learn those things about others. But preserving each other's dignity, not spreading a harmful uh, false gossip or a harmful true gossip, being encouraging to one another and not disparaging, these actions are just an extension of Christ's command to us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. It's just that elementary and just that important. So let's pray. Father God, we want to be a people that reflects your goodness and your love to each other instead of a people that reflects our own insecurities and pettiness upon you. Help us to make it our mission to watch how we set the tone in our discussions wherever we lead and to raise those tones a little bit higher when we can and convict us by your Holy Spirit when we are tearing someone down and to use that incredible power instead to build each other up. We know, Lord, that your son didn't die to forgive our sins only so that we could wallow in our most basic errors, like falsely speaking and speaking cruelly. Guide us to how we can do better, Lord. Make us worthy of the name by which you have called us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.